0: Abolition. Abolition. Abolition.
1: Abolition.
2: abolition 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 tales from the plantation nation fresh
1: I look around for my mother and my little sister. What happened to my brother? Some motherfuckers killed him. Damn, my head's spinning and I'm sick to my stomach. Everything is pitch black and I can't see nothing. Everything was pitch black except the motherfuckers coming. I didn't mean to let them catch me. I was looking for my brother. All I know is that I feel an arm. Could be a foot, but a brother couldn't speak because his tongue they took. I was shook when I saw that fetus fall from the womb. But they came in the name of Jesus. Man, I'm confused. We was fooled. Our village was Burnt in all our twos And now I'm poly on this cruise And a nigga shark food If I can't make it Where the fuck's my destination To the land of milk and honey But I'm naked and I'm hated And Satan told me speak another language Damn It's fucked up on this slave ship It's a dead body next to me It's a dead body next to me It's fucked up on this slave ship It's a dead body next to me It's a dead body next to me It's fucked up on this slave ship It's a dead body next to me it's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this shit. It's a dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this shit. I look around for my mother and my little sister. What happened to my brother? Some motherfuckers killed him. Damn, my head's spinning and I'm sick to my stomach. Everything pitch black and I can't see nothing. coming down. On think about jumping the big homie through a meeting but he ain't talking about nothing all i know is that he got an l could be a rock so he don't feel like they see it when they come to them cops But some shit that ain't about to stop so they m.i.a where they at working hard down in p.i.a private prisons make millions worth the cca brought making like a dollar a day no And I said, the Count time come. If your ass move then you ain't dead. Or It's a toilet by my bed. Or it's a dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me It's fucked up on this life ship. It's dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this slave ship. It's a dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this slave ship. It's a dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this slave ship. Yeah.
0: Nation, welcome everybody. That was a Slave Ship by Sarah Fresh on New Movie and Music, and once again, I just want to welcome everybody to the second show of the first season of Tales from the Plantation Nation, a subsidiary podcast of Abolition Today, which comes to you every Sunday um, and brings to you news about the movement to end and abolish slavery all throughout the country once and for all. And my name is Samuel Nathaniel Brown, and I'm the host of Tales in the Plantation Nation. It's an honor to be here with you all today. And if this is your first time tuning in, thank you for joining us. If you're coming back for the second time, thank you for joining us again. And this show here, this podcast, it's about giving a voice to the marginalized, giving a voice to the oppressed. I mean, you know, the often overlooked and forgotten. And particularly in this case, the forgotten demographic that we're referring to, is the incarcerated, you know, and not just the incarcerated, but also the people who are, you know, connected to the incarcerated are indirectly and even directly impacted by the incarcerated. And that's a wider array of people. Because when we talk about folks who are incarcerated, oftentimes they person someone who's committed a crime. So it's, it's always two people on each side of the crime. The person who feels like they've been harmed, and the person who cares about the person who's accused of committing the harm. And we always seek to keep it balanced here, until from the Plantation Nation, just because we speak about or for the rights of people who are incarcerated, in no way does it imply or mean that we do not advocate for the rights of people who have been harmed by folks who are incarcerated. We don't advocate for crime. We don't support that, none of that. But at the same time, we don't install the system. Thought uh, sort of the collective conscience of a government who's also contributed to the development and the upbringing of people who find themselves in the criminal justice system. So, on Tales from the Plantation Nation, you'll hear you know, voices from both sides. And the whole goal is to just rehabilitate the image of people. Rehabilitate the image of people here. And let it be known just because a person has committed a crime or they're incarcerated, it does not mean that they're incorrigible, And vice versa. You may not know what the life is like, you know, what life is like. for so some of these people who, people inside have committed crimes against. And on this show, we bring you on, you know, I run the 10P program and in that program and like in this show, we wanna bring voices that are not often heard. So we wanna have crime survivors speak and not just crime survivors who say, hey, throw them away, lock away the key, you know, throw them away and lock away the key, lock them away and throw away the key. But rather, those who who have, you know, are reached a place in their life where they don't just support an adversarial system, but one that's more restorative justice-based, and they want answers, and they want to understand why me, and why why did you commit that crime? Why was I the target of a crime? How did we get here? How can we change this? Something much more than just put them in a the cell and throw away the keys. So with that said, welcome, everybody. Welcome. There's a lot going on in the fight for justice. Um, there's a the fight for reparations. Congratulations to the California Reparations Task Force for submitting their final report in the fight for reparations to get us a little. You know, you can't never really give us all the redress, and I say I mean black people what we've been through in this country. You can't never really fully redress us for what we've been through and what we're still going through. But the acknowledgement, you know, a drop in the well, something will go a long way in breaking the transgenerational trauma and the and the and the, uh. The physical psychological effects of slavery that you see hunting on people today would help. So it's a lot of stuff taking place, and I just want to congratulate Camilla Moore, Chris Lawson, Friday Jones, I mean, Josiah, you name it, everybody, Tad, everybody that's involved with this movement, and everybody that supports it. We need you to come out, keep coming out, tell the governor to approve it, tell your local leaders to approve reparations, because it's the right thing to do. And also we have ACAA. The fight to end involuntary servitude and slavery with the end Cali- with the End Slavery in California A- Coalition, the End Slavery in California Coalition, and to find out more about that, you go to enslaveryincalifornia.org. We're fighting to end slavery and abolish involuntary servitude once and for all. With that said, my guest today is um, none other than the great Dr. Jody Amour. and as you all recall. I wanted to have him here last time, you know, to kick off the the initial show along with Aaron Showtime Keller, But because I got Eastern time and Pacific time confused, there was a scheduling conflict. So Dr. Jody wasn't able to make it. But he's with us today. And before I even introduce you or ask you to say a word, I just want to read a little bit about you, you know what I'm saying? Share something with the people so they can understand the, you know, the honor and the pleasure that it is to interview you and talk to you today. So Dr. Jody Amor is a law professor at the University of Southern California on Race Relations and Criminal Justice. He's also the author of a book entitled, or well, more than one book, the one we're talking about today is called Nigger Theory, Race, Language, Unequal Justice, and the Law. And in it, he explores the power of language and the way it shapes our understanding of race relations and the criminal justice system in the United States. Dr. Ormer argues that the use of the word nigger has evolved over time and has been reclaimed by some black people as a term of endearment or solidarity while still being used as a slur by others. He also examines the ways in which language is used in the criminal justice system from the labels given to different types of crimes to the way police officers communicate with suspects. Now all throughout this book, and you all will love this book, love this book, from cover to cover, a must read, all throughout the book, um, Dr. Ormer emphasizes the importance of recognizing the role that inequality and injustice, I mean, that role that language plays in perpetuating racial inequality and injustice. He also calls for a more nuanced understanding of the way language is used in different contexts and for greater awareness of the power dynamics that play in these situations. Overall, nigger theory offers a thought provoking analysis of the complex interplay between language, race, and the law, and provides insight into the ways in which we can work towards a more just, an equitable society. And uh if that isn't enough, he's also all around or overall great human being. So I'd like to welcome to the show Dr. Jody Armour. Dr. Jody, welcome to Tales from the Plantation Nation.
2: Sam, my brother, it's really good to be here with you. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: As am I. Thank you for joining us today. So I guess I um I would like to start with a quote that actually stood out to me from your book. There are a few of them that I jotted down as I read it. You didn't even know I was doing this, but I waited to surprise you. And the, the first one, it says, you know, it stood out to me, it says language is a tool of power, and the power to define is the power to control. Could you give me a little insight into, you know, because that's, what does that mean to you? When you when you when you shared that with the people, what were you conveying with that with that passage right there? Yes, Sam, it, it it really
2: um it really derives in part from a comedy stand up comedy routine by none other than Chris Rock.
3: The one that helped <laughs> to right.
2: really launch yeah, really helped to launch his comedy career called Bring the Pain in which he walked back and forth in front of an mm. all-black, just about all-black audience in Chocolate City and said, it's like a civil war going on out here, and there's two sides. There's mm. black people and there's niggas, and niggas mm. have got to go. I love black people, but I hate niggas. Boy, I would say, mm-hmm. let me join the Ku Klux Klan. i do a drive-by from here to Brooklyn. And he kept on mm. saying like that for 20 minutes, right, showing contempt and scorn for black people who he designated as so-called niggas. And his core distinction, when you looked at his routine and distilled it, his core definition of a so-called nigger was a black person who does a crime when you looked at all of his examples. So lovable black people, right, lovable black people are law-abiding Negroes, good Negroes, and niggas are lawbreakers, you know, so-called bad Negroes. And the audience was laughing, rolling in the aisle, Sam, accepting mm. the invitation implicit in his punchline between us respectable Negroes and them contemptible niggas who are black criminals. And I thought at the time that's a powerful use of language, number one, you know, stand-up mm-hmm. routines. Are, are, are based on wordplay and using language right. effectively. But number two, I looked at the statistics, and I looked at, at some of these neighborhoods, Sam, up to, nine, up to 90% of the young black males in some of these urban neighborhoods were going to wind up in jail, on probation, or on parole at some point in their lives. So by his definition, up to 90% of our own youth are niggas, and we're laughing at that punchline where we're, we are otherizing, demonizing, monsterizing our own youth with that word, right, used in its most pejorative, vile possible sense, right? Mm. So that's what, that's what inspired me, Sam, to, you know, go down this path and say, how did we as black people get to the point where we looked at one another and we're able to say the large segments of our own community are niggas, you know, and, 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 and I hope we get to get into that as we talk.
0: Oh, yeah, we're definitely going to get into that. Um, that was one of the things I was really impressed with where, as I um, continued to read. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I recall a time when I was in the prison. And I was standing in the child hall waiting to get something to eat. And it was this officer that was just super racist. She was super racist. And um, she said to the people in line, we're like, let the blacks go first. You know how they love their chicken, right? And these guys who wanted to be on her good side, you know, they laughed and, you know, buck danced and all this stuff. And me and the couple guys that I was with who didn't find that funny at all, we, we just looked at it. And I told her, I said, that's racist and very offensive. So eventually I got singled out and fired and rolled up and went to the hole and all the stuff from this lady. But what I realized, yeah. and I've been realizing this over the years, when you speak up, you know, when you stand out and you say something, and especially even in regards to our own folks and call them on their shit, then they look at you like you're the bad guy. Have you gotten some of that from having this discussion oh, around niggas? Oh,
2: heck yeah, Sam. You know I have because you have a lot of people who really – the idea we should distinguish between good and bad Negroes. There are people, many in the black community and outside the black community, who actually think that, you know, we should distinguish and distance ourselves from black criminals. All of those of us who are law-abiding Negroes should distinguish and distance ourselves from them so we don't get confused with them and so that we will have better political fortunes, you know, because we're, we're concerned that we look good in the eyes of white people as a community because white people are the policymakers. They're the presidents. They're the decision makers. So they think our racial reputation is important. And, the, and to protect our racial reputation, they say we need to distinguish ourselves from bad Negroes or niggas as law-abiding good Negroes. It's a political strategy as well as a moral one in their, in their viewpoint. And so it's ugly, Sam. It's been out here that's a long so time.
0: Mm-hmm. What's that? That's so, I said that's so cowardice because basically what they're saying is instead of trying to heal the body or heal the limb, they rather just cut it off and think they can go along without it. No doubt, no doubt they're, they're, They think
2: that they are really different from and better than those people That's the idea, right, Sam, And a lot of this You know, what I'm arguing for in the book is uh, a moral framework that is rooted in redemption, restoration, and, and rehabilitation Rather than retribution, retaliation, and revenge But those people are okay, with re- retribution, retaliation, and revenge because they think they're really better than the people that they're punishing. Right. They think that, oh, right. you don't confuse me with them. That could never be me. You know, therefore, the grace of God, not go I. I'm superior to that. And that, you know, that's what, that's what you got to get at to, to really root out this, this, this attitude.
0: This us versus them, to meaning that, that divide and conquer that we've been dealing with for so many ages. So I I know you're familiar with Carter G. Woodson, Miseducation of the Negro. He talks about this in his book. He talks about how black people used to go to college and go to school to get money to come back to try to improve their neighborhood. But somewhere around the 1920s and the 1930s, he said it began to be a shift in our culture. After the United Negro Improvement Association movement and Marcus Garvey and then were brought under attack, it's like blacks began going to get educated and getting their money so that they could say, I got mine, get yours. And it seems like we've been dealing with that since that time, yeah, no doubt
2: you know you can fall into a rugged individualism, it's promoted by capitalism. We live in a capitalistic country, right and the and the, at the heart of capitalism is not community but trying to competitors, and constantly looking at one another and and profit and and you know cost benefit terms. And so, yes, you know, that is an attitude that a lot of us have, you know, in, in, in kind of um, imbibed, if you will, and internalized over time. But we've also, fortunately, Sam, had a counter movement, too, and, uh, that, that goes against that current of individualism, you know, looking out for right. myself and the hell with everybody else. And that's been the, 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 the history of movement making you know, getting together and making movements together as a, as a community. So we have that to look, to, to, to be hopeful about too.
0: 100%. I thank God for that. And while we're talking about separation, I'm thinking, so, you know, we get into this conversation and we don't play no games. We, 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 we have real conversations. And yes, I think, of, I think of all of the, you know, we come in various hues and colors and skin tones and, and all of that. It's what it's what black people do. Um, <laughs> by by nature, and I think about you with this book called Nigger Theory, and then I look at you, and you're this light skinned brother with this big gigantic Afro, right? So when you think of like divide and conquer and separation, when you come with this title and this theory, and your 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 Afrocentricity and electricity you know, and who you are, do you get a lot of pushback from from black folks or even white folks? Oh yeah.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No question, uh, Sam. And I'm glad that you brought up the skin tone point, right? Because the fact of the matter is colorism is another thing and is another evil that plagues our community, the black community. And it plagues communities all over the world. You know, cultures, my students are from all over the world, and they'll talk about in various cultures and countries all over the world, darker people are looked down on, tend to be looked down on. And so you see here, even within the black community, you have sometimes, a lot of times, lighter-skinned people getting privileged. There's a light-skinned yes. privilege uh, as against darker-skinned people. my son for I have three sons. My son, Allende, is very dark-skinned, right? He looks like his mother. My other two sons are lighter-skinned, and I saw firsthand how people responded to them differently. Even though they were brothers, they didn't, you know, strangers didn't recognize them as brothers. They just, you know, had different levels of threats that they felt depending on the darkness of the skin. The darker you are, the more threatening you seem to people out here in general, and there are studies to back this. They found that people who are darker skinned are viewed more deathworthy in death penalty cases than people who are lighter skinned. Wow. So how we've even blamed and punished people is a function of light and dark within the black community. And so it's important that light skinned people recognize their light skinned privilege, but recognize that we're all in it together because what makes us all black is the fact that we could have stood up on that auction block and been sold as cattle. And I as well as my darkest-skinned son, as well as that light-skinned person who could almost pass, we could all get sold at auction. That, that kind of blackness unites us in spite of all of those internal divisions. <laughs>
0: right. That's, one, that's a hell of a unifying factor right there. And I love the way you worded that, because I used to tell the guys that on the inside. I said, uh, when, the, when them people came over there looking for people to enslave, they didn't say, are oh, you Ashanti? Are oh, you Bantu? They didn't say, are oh, you from Ghana? They didn't ask any of that. Any nigga would do. You understand what I'm saying? Yep. Any nigga would do when it comes to putting your ass on that plantation. When it comes to putting you on that great goose, putting you on the bus, putting you in the prison cell, any nigga would do. They don't discriminate. We do that amongst ourselves. We come up with these superficial differences. We come up with these reasons to create these factions and war with one another. But the fact of the matter, when it comes to them oppressing us, when it comes to them looking down upon all of us all, all the same. Any nigga would do. And so I ultimately hey. feel like that Hey. I like I it. Keep going, like, Sam. I'm feeling you. Yeah, I just ultimately feel like that that's, you know, somewhat of the unifying purpose with this book. <laughs> but while we talk about skin tone, in addition to darker skinned people being, you know, frowned upon or looked as more aggressive <laughs> or dangerous, even within the black race and culture, however you want to do it, the ethnicity. Um, within the black race, especially here in America, that I noticed, like I've had people who taught me guys that I've learned from that were dark skinned and light skinned. And I've heard the comments from people who when you run into somebody that's light skinned, that knows our history, that knows their stuff, when they're very pro black and Afrocentric, sometimes you run into these dark skinned folks who say, Oh, look how hard he's trying or look how hard she trying. Have you ever yep. ran into any you, you, you,
2: Yeah. You know why you know why it's important to address that, Sam, because it is Before ridiculous list for It's ridiculous for anybody who knows the history of black people. That's my point. Blackness has never been defined by biology. It's always been, are you going to stand on that auction block or not?
3: You know, black man, black
2: woman, black, right? Black man, black woman, black baby. White man, white woman, um, white baby. Black man, white woman, black baby. This is how we do race in America. Black, uh, Black woman, white man, black baby. Black man, white woman, black baby. You take that black baby from that, say, black man and white woman or that black woman and white man. You take that black baby that so-called biracial baby, right, and you have, they mm-hmm. have a baby with a white person, what comes out? A black baby. That's how we do right. it in America, right? We've always done it that way because that, that way the, the slave owner could have the property to put up on the auction block, right? So it, uh, it, it, what we're zeroing in on is, you know, when you look back at history, the history of black folks, are you going to kick out Frederick Douglass? you going to tell me Frederick Douglass, who was biracial, but as is, is, is black as he black as they come, are you going to kick out W.B. Du Bois? He was biracial, one of the most important minds of the 20th century, one of the greatest minds of the 20th century. You're going to throw out Malcolm X because his mom was biracial. You're going to throw out the Harlem Renaissance. You look at the Harlem Renaissance, a lot of them could pass. You're going to kick them out of black history? It's ridiculous, right, to get caught up in that kind of stuff.
0: Exactly. then you want to kick them out because when they were on the plantation, most of their family members were like, raped, you know, or or – or because of the relationship, whatever the case may be, it just doesn't make sense, and that's why we brought it up, because I know how it goes. I'm glad you it. did. I've, thank you. I know you would appreciate it, because it's not, you know, I'm going to bring up stuff the average people won't talk about. So on this podcast, we have having real discussions, and if this is too much for you, I respect that. You probably should tune out, you know what I'm saying, or just grit and bear it. Maybe you'll learn something. This ain't for everybody. but This, then, is, this is an acquired change. You, yes, sir. But Sam, you ain't never
2: lied. Nobody hardly brings that up, and yet it's so important to bring up colorism within the black community and light skin privilege, and how you know what 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 does it mean to be an authentic voice? Can you speak with authentic blackness if you also enjoy light skin privilege, right? And that's a fair question, and you are one of the few people that's ever really raised it incisively,
0: man. So kudos. Thank you for that, man. Yeah, it's very important. I experience it all the time. Like, when I speak, I know how to code switch, but because I talk the way I talk. Just, I, just, the other day, somebody told me I sound stupid when I talk, and I'm fine with that. I don't mind sounding stupid to you um, because to everybody else that's listening, they get an the opportunity to experience what they don't normally experience, and that's somebody from my background and a position that I've earned by fighting and working real hard, and now I'm able to talk and have a discussion with somebody like you. So for all the people who speak like me, that talk like me and can relate to me, It's a whole slew of us. I represent that. You know what I mean? And there's a truth in these conversations that we be having. We be having these discussions about the colorism amongst black people, about the divide and conquer and the separation. And so to have an opportunity to talk to somebody as, you know, accomplished as yourself, someone as enlightened as you, to do it on this platform, it's only right that I bring it up because it's our job to plant these seeds. We need people from, especially uh, black people and people of color, from all walks of life to start working together. We need a united, righteous, black mind state. If we can't start, you know, getting rid of these divisions that separate us, whether, you know, you could be, like you said, like those people you were talking about earlier who feel like they should be separate from the quote-unquote niggas. That's part of Mm -hmm. the problem. That means they've they've drunk the Kool-Aid. They have drunk the Mm Kool-Aid. And so we're going to take a break real quick, and we're going to come back and talk about, you know, the impact of words on on the criminal justice system, you know, from – from the, the ability for government officials to be able to shape our beliefs, to be able to shape our social structure, but our criminal justice system and how we treat folks. And you touched on some of that in your book. In fact, I wrote down a quote. I want to leave you with a quote before we go to the break. You said, uh, The criminal justice system is not merely a reflection of the values and beliefs of society. It is also a powerful shaper of those values and beliefs. So I wanted to talk about that when we come back from the break. Here, so right here. now, y'all, this is a... Uh, These are the facts, featuring my girl, Tanya Mack.
2: Tales from the Plantation Nation.
4: Peace,
3: kings and queens. My name is Tanya Mack. I am your sister, your homegirl, and your friend. And these are the facts. According to the Equal Justice Initiative, between 1865 and 1950, United States. According to the FBI's Uniform Crime Reporting Program, in 2019, 88% of black homicide victims were killed by black offenders in the United States. There were 7,484 black-on-black homicides in 2019 alone. In 2019 alone. the Congressional Research Service in 2016, 39% of welfare recipients were white, 25% were black, 22% were Hispanic, and 2% were Asian. According to a report by the National Association of Crime Defense Lawyers, black defendants are more likely to accept plea bargains than white defendants. This isn't necessarily because they're more guilty, but really because the criminal justice system is biased against us. The following stats are from a book called Era of Mass Expansion by Joshua Aiken. Check this out. 70% of incarcerated people come from single-parent homes. 50% of incarcerated people are learning disabled. 50% of incarcerated people are illiterate. And 70% have no vocational training. Most juvenile offenders are in the 14 to 16 year age range. It costs $40,000 a year on average to house an inmate. That's five times higher than tuition at Penn State. In California, where we live, it costs $115,000, and that's almost 15 times the tuition for Penn State. The most recent government study of recidivism reported that 82% of people incarcerated in state prison were arrested at some point in the 10 years following their release but the vast majority of those were arrested within the first three years and more than half of those within the first year. 35% of the jail population meets medical standards for having a diagnosable substance abuse disorder. 15.3% of the jail population reports being recently homeless compared to just 2% Of the general population. 52% of people in jail are people of color. Compared to only 28% of the general population, black people are jailed at four times the rate of white people. Four times the rate. According to the Times-Picune in Louisiana, many sheriffs especially in recent years, have embraced the for-profit business let me say it again, have embraced the for-profit business of renting jail space to other authorities. This phenomenon is most visible in Louisiana, where the state has largely outsourced the construction and operation of state prisons to individual parish sheriffs. Just over half, about 52%, of the state's prison population is housed under contract with local jails. And as a result, two-thirds, approximately 67%, of the people held in Louisiana jails are not traditional jail inmates. I was using air quotes, but y'all couldn't see that. Unlike other states, Louisiana's jail building booms appears to have been entirely fueled by the pursuit of contracts within the state's prison system. I'm You wanna talk to your mama the Huffington Post since Sandra Glenn died in 2015, at least eight hundred people have lost their lives in custody. This is Tales from the Plantation. I am Tommy Mack. And these are the facts. No spin, no blend, no putting nothing in. Thank you. (laughs) Dale from the planet.
0: Matt. No spin, no blend, no put nothing in. We just bring y'all the straight numbers and let you draw your own conclusions. We don't have to lie. We don't have to put no extras on it. We don't have to sell you. We just give you the numbers and let you realize for yourself. And so, um, Doctor Jody, was there anything you, these these are the facts that you know set out to you? Any of those numbers? Well, yeah, it, it all does, and you know
2: what's great is the pattern that emerges when you hear all those facts and you see what's really at stake, because Mm -hmm. when they talked about the people caught up in the criminal justice system, notice how many of those people were from truly disadvantaged backgrounds, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a high, there's a very high correlation between poverty and turning to criminal behavior of street crime variety. There's a lot of other stuff that is never prosecuted as crime, you know, white collar crime that's just as bad. It takes even more lives sometimes. But we're talking about street level crime. Um, That's certainly the case. It's truly disadvantaged. Folks um, are, are disproportionately represented. So when Chris Rock is saying, I love black people, but I hate niggers, what you really have is a class distinction masquerading as a moral distinction right because most the uh, disproportionate number of the so-called niggas are from truly disadvantaged backgrounds so he might as well be right. saying i love you know the black bourgeoisie wow. and i hate truly disadvantaged blacks that's when you just see the numbers that's what's really being said right and so you're, yes all of those facts that I heard recited, I think, really drive home that connection.
0: Ooh, that's a hard one right there, a hard pill to swallow. Thank you for making that correlation. I wonder if anyone has ever taken the time to explain to him that that is what he was he even knows. You know, with the joke that he made. I mean, clearly, well, clearly he doesn't. Go ahead, Doc.
2: Well, Sam, I, I'm just gonna, I was just gonna say. Again, he was reflecting an attitude that's too common in our own community. You hear, you hear black folks talking about, at least back in the 90s, you always heard in the 2000s. Still today I hear, oh, that's so ghetto. You know, what the hell does that mean? You know, you're coming, if you're coming from, a, some, uh, you know, some, uh, and a lot of times you'll hear middle class, black saying it. Sometimes you hear others say it, well, but what, what, does, that, what does that even mean? You know, that's a very clearly class. Awesome. aim directed barb right it is and so it's even so though in our own community
0: we have that problem it is you'll hear so if someone someone if certain a group of people will hear you speak and they'll say oh he's talking like he white i've had people tell me yeah. that i had i had a lady recently tell me she said i'm not sure if i like you one day she said one minute it's like i'm talking to somebody from the hood and the next minute i'm talking to a white man and this was a woman, that sister, that told me this. And I just looked at it, and I'm like, well, you know what? I take that as a compliment, first and foremost, and an insult at the same time. I said it's a compliment <laughs> because the way I'm speaking right now, I didn't speak this way when I went to prison. I spent many yeah. days with my face in the book, improving my vocabulary and learning and studying and getting knowledge of self and, and increasing yeah. my vernacular, you know. So I said I take that as yeah. a compliment that you feel that way. On the other hand, it's an insult because you associate me speaking as intelligence with, a, with being white or anything not black, and you're a black woman, and that's all too common. You hear that all the time. Why he talking like he white? Why he acting like he white? So, even with the, you know, in the nigger theory, we have so yeah, let's many. let's like, with that, Sam. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I love that.
2: It gets back to your language point. You know, you came in. Let's talk about language, and that's one in white. Well, you know, a, a, a lot of us have run across that criticism. And mm-hmm. for one thing, it is a it's a big benefit in this society to be bilingual in, in terms of being able to code switch, being able to speak right. a vernacular from the street, the street vernacular when you have to, and being able to, you know, put it down in a more conventional way that people recognize, you know, in other circles if you have to, too. That's called just code switching. That's called just... You know, uh, uh, navigating and survival. You know that shouldn't be something that you criticize. You should try to pick up that skill set yourself. You know, so you can coach with just as well as he can. You know, number exactly. one. Exactly. You know, and then that's, number that's two. That's how bridges are built. Yes, yes, and you know, number two, what what does talking white really mean? You know, is Toni Morrison not talking black when she's writing? Song of Solomon or Car Baby or Beloved or you know, Jazz, you know. Um when when she right. waxes eloquent when she's getting the Nobel Prize for <laughs> literature, you know. Is mm-hmm. she not is, is she she's not black, you know, she's not being a black woman at that moment. That's what's so ridiculous about it, that you know, we, we, we are people of infinite possibilities. I
0: agree one hundred percent. And even when we're striving to to evolve and do better, I'll break it down to even a subculture for you and show you how that pattern exists on a level that most people probably aren't even aware of. So when a person gets incarcerated and they put themselves on the path of really striving to improve and rehabilitate, there's a certain language that comes along with that. There's a certain, you know, behavior and discipline and everything that comes along with that. And what I've learned inside of our community that also takes place, that no one really talks about except for inside the 10P program now is that a language barrier is oftentimes created with the stigma that comes with being incarcerated. So when we talk about like niggers and nigger theory and black people and language and everything, it's not just like um, a black and white thing, like speaking black is intelligent or unintelligent. It's also sometimes it comes down to a gender thing or are you black enough thing or are you still real enough thing? You know what I'm saying? All this comes with the context of language. I I remember a buddy of mine who was about to parole and I, I mentioned this on the last show. And, um, he, he took the time to learn about himself, and when he was talking to his girl, his girl said, oh, nigga, you done went in there and got gay? He's talking all this soft shit. And it was just like, damn, what kind of comment is that? First of all, um, that was that's an insult to somebody that's, you know, gay. And then second of all, why would this man, you know, learning and taking the time to get to know himself and being able to articulate all of a sudden be associated with being soft? You know, so it, it kind of led to that whole toxic masculinity And what I realized is it creates a language barrier between people when they get out to their family members because oftentimes people on the streets are not doing the same type of work. And when you you try to have a conversation, if they're not, you know, dedicated to doing the work or willing to do the work, it'll cause conflict a great deal. And no one really talks about that.
2: Man, I I I like that a lot. And, um, yeah, I don't think we... It, it, it isn't just a black thing. It's a cultural thing. You see it on the right a lot where people are anti-intellectual. You know, there's an anti-intellectualism. Oh. There's a strain of it in American culture. It It, it isn't just, you, you know, it isn't one group or another, but you see it. And that anti-intellectualism, sometimes it's in, it takes the form of, you know, racial bigotry and hatred. It's, it, it's kind of in Nazism. But there's that, that anti-intellectual strand that says, I don't want to hear about science. I don't want to hear about climate change. I don't think that Biden actually won the election. I think it was all a grand conspiracy. I mean, that you know, you you have a a lot of folks who aren't really even grappling with, ready to acknowledge some of the, the basic realities. And so, yeah, I I um I agree with you, Sam. Uh, you know, I, I I couldn't agree more. And so, what 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 do we do then? What what do we do about this? Stigmatization of people Mm -hmm. who can use the Queen's, the King's English. I guess it's the King's English now that he's had his coronation. It was the Queen's (laughs) English, English for a long time there. But you know, now this this King's English that you know we've been able to use. um, You know, what? How do we convince other people that it's worthwhile mastering this? Well, all I can say is, I point to my dad. You know my dad's story. He was given 22 to 55 years and in uh, Ohio State Penitentiary for possession sale of marijuana. And he was a uh, six foot eight inch, barrel chested, upper Negro who was going to do all 55 of them years because he was not going to get no good time credit. right? So his <laughs> only way, his only way out of that predicament, man, was to master language, just like you did. Go in, study, he taught himself criminal law, constitutional law, criminal procedure and then started writing his own writ of habeas corpus on a manual royal typewriter, speaking of the Queen's English or King's English, royal manual typewriter. His own writ of habeas corpus represented himself pro se in the state and federal system until he succeeded in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, a case called Armour v. Salisbury that says it's a denial of due process for the prosecution to deliberately lie to the jury. So he, you know, he showed you the language, mastering language. All he had was language. All he had was words. And he used those words, that language, to find the key to his own jailhouse door. That's the value of of, of mastering multiple kinds of language games.
0: I agree with you 100%. Um, you know, I, I would not take this point. You just said that so eloquently that I would like to take this point to share my all-time favorite quote. And it is, words make man free for whomsoever cannot express himself is a slave. And so that wow. whole story that you just shared with us about your father, thank you for that, it embodies that. It embodies that,
2: you know. Well,
0: and that's, and that's one, one of the
2: things that connects connect me and you, Sam. You know, I've, I always tell my students there are four occupations in America whose bread and butter are, is word work. They stand or fall on what they can do with language, the words they use. That would be writers, poets, lawyers, which my dad turned into, and rappers. Which you are, you know. You, I, I appreciate your mastery of the language, different language games, your ability to make some art out of language, you know, and uh, make something out Thank of you. nothing, you know. So yeah, that I, I, I'm, I'm really connected to you on that level. Thank you for that?
0: Yeah, I was like, damn! Out of the, out of the four you named, I fit three of them: the writer, the poet, and the rapper. That's right.
2: right. That's right.
0: And, and, I, I and, and who I'm knows? Gonna...
2: You're going to keep hanging out with these lawyers, and pretty soon you're going to be sitting in <laughs> the law
0: too. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We're not going to. Hey, I, I already went pro per. I went through nine judges and six district attorneys. They were trying to give me a second life sentence, and I, I fought that case for five years. They used to come in the courtroom. The, the attorneys and the district attorneys would come in and just watch me, and they would ask me, they said, where did you get your education from? Did you go to law school? Where did you study at? And I said, I read books in my cell, and I studied in the law library. And I'm here to fight for my life. You're not going to give me. They were trying to give me another life sentence. Get this, Jody. Whoa. Another life sentence. For zero point zero 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 three grams of marijuana.
2: Whoa, that's an absurd! And especially when we're finding out more and more that a lot of most of the people, if not if not all, but most of the people, bringing the contraband oh. into the prisons are the guards.
0: Thank you. That that marijuana came from the officers, right? And so you know? and that's oftentimes how it happens. And and you'll see the people inside the prison who are the vulnerable population. That's the other thing. I'm so happy you brought that up. Now, let's talk about that for a second. And I know everybody who's incarcerated, who has a loved one incarcerated, would appreciate this conversation right here. But the fact of the matter is, people that work in the prison introduce the contraband, just like here in America, same, same stuff. The people in the prison get caught with the contraband, and they get more time and more severely punished than the person who introduced the contraband to the vulnerable population. Oh, yeah,
2: they don't even get caught. Many of them are are corrections officers. That's been shown time and time again. There are all kinds of scandals out there right now about corrections officers who have been busted bringing contraband in because it's very lucrative. They can make a lot of money in these transactions, you know, being basically mules in and out. And yet, you know, what they're trying to do is in the name of – reducing the flow of contraband or getting contraband out of prison, they're saying, oh, prisoners shouldn't any longer get letters. We you know we we're not going to let them get letters because they' what? have contraband in the letters, so they can't touch letters anymore you know and and we're we're going to, we're going to you know have fewer visits and visits that are more separate, to separate people from yeah. people because we'll keep our contraband when that, it's not the contraband, the visitors aren't bringing the contraband in it's it's guards, and then they're coming up
0: with ways to you know scapegoat the prisoners and their visitors well you got that's one way of looking at it. They're coming up with ways scapegoat to scapegoat the prisoners, right? The other way of looking yep. at it, and their families. The other way of looking at it is they're coming up with ways to have new income streams because once you get rid yep. of the visits and you start putting everything on the monitors, well, that's new contracts. That's new yep. tech company money. That's new that's new people that you're going to, you know, going to manufacture jobs for outside of the prison. That's, yep. that's a whole lot of people. That's a lot of money being generated that none of us are going to see. And only people suffering the hardship are the people who are incarcerated and the people that love them. But they'll float it under the guise of controlling contraband But that's, that's not the truth It's really about making money And continuing this whole uh, prison industrial complex
2: I feel All you right, man It's about float. making money And it, uh, it, it's definitely I 100% agree it's about making money and, but, and it's easier to make money Off these bodies In these cages If we can demonize them And otherize them And niggerize them And that's where we come back to what we started the conversation off Ooh. with You know, the fact that we have dehumanized the people that we imprison, and that's what makes it easy for us to tell them things like we're going to separate you from your families. You started out in your opening remarks, for example, Sam, saying, you know, this isn't just about the people in in the cells. The people outside the cells are also in the cells. My dad was in in that cell for five years. You think that as his child, I lost him when I was eight years old. You think that I wasn't in that cell with him every night? You know, everybody wow. in the family's in the cell with that person, you know. Right. So you literally have, you know, for the, for every 1,000 people you have in cells, you have 50,000 people in there sympathetically identifying oh. with them, grieving, and, and just worrying about them nonstop.
0: So with that said, I want to take time to make a PSA based on what Dr. Jody Armore just said. Everybody that's incarcerated that's listening right now, And everybody that has someone incarcerated that they love, based on what Dr. Jolie just said, I just want to say this to you. If you're incarcerated and you got one person on the whole planet that is happy to hear your voice when you call, you got one person on the whole planet that you can turn to when you're in need of something, somebody that's looking forward to you coming home, that believes that you're really in there doing what you need to do to change your life and get out. If you got that one person, cherish them, love them, honor them, let them motivate you. You understand what I'm saying? And if you are that person on the outside and you got somebody on the inside, support them. And when I say support them, I don't necessarily mean financially. I mean, give them words of encouragement. Those 15-minute phone calls are challenging. Those, those visits when they get shut down are challenging. They're dealing with waking up on one side of the bed, which is always the wrong side of the bed every day, is challenging. And all the life out here is challenging, too. I just want to say for everybody out there that supports somebody that's incarcerated, that believes in their ability to change, Thank you, because the system is intentionally made challenging and difficult for all of us, you know what I mean? And it's designed for us to give up on one another. And when we don't give up on one another, that's when we have those breakthroughs and change is possible, and your loved one will come home, and you will make it back to that person that cares about you. So I just want, based on what you just said, Dr. Jody, I just want to stop stop, and acknowledge the people who are incarcerated and let them know that if you got somebody that believes in you, man, cherish that one person. And, and if you're on the outside and you got somebody up in there, even if they get in trouble, don't just throw away the towel. It's very challenging, and it's not always what it looks like on the outside. So with that said, when we come back, we will have another break real quick, Dr. Jody. When we come back, I kind of want to dialogue with you about, you know, ACA 8, the fight to end slavery. I want to talk to you about the push for reparations. You know, you, we just recently had Camilla over, you know, at one of your classes, and we had an opportunity to talk to her and meet her. And I would like you to share some of that with the people. And what your taking is on reparations. Um if they are or not needed, what it should look like, and so forth and so on. And, and talk about ending slavery and the violent service here in California, in the prison systems, and across the nation. So when we come back, I would love to get some of your precious insight on that. And um, tell everybody, this is Tales from the Plantation Nation. This right here is the artist that's going the harvest and is brought to you by Aim for the Heart. So uh, enjoy. Tales from the Plantation Nation. Oh.
2: This is Layla Steinberg, and
5: this is the artist going the hardest, brought to you by Aim for the Heart. What's poppin', what's poppin'? I'm Maserati here. you tuned in the
0: Tales from the Plantation, and speaking of that, this is a song called One Day, that I wrote while I was on the plantation, that's pretty self-explanatory, I hope you're feeling it, but
5: slap this, live with me one time, no lie. No lie. One day, yeah, every day. Gone change, no life from feeling like a slave, waiting to be saved and set free. home one day, yeah, everything's gone. It's a shame when you don't see change Held down for somebody else's gain Damn, desensitized to see pain Cause it's normalized what we say Damn, in the place is on the restraint And it's reconstructing our brain Damn, like Socrates said Who partially you believe that they're free No one's more enslaved No lie, no lie Better open your eyes Cause most of the world is blind And hypnotized but if we can see the signs, we could free our minds, yeah, we can be inclined, we could see those times together, we could change the world forever, shout out to my people like Jason Jones, creating change forever, there's multiple ways to break the mold and break these chains forever, shout out to my people like Adnan Khan, that's changing the way we think. first watch, how we restore, what it mean to be a human being? Shout out to my people like Antoine Williams. He told me we gon' change the world by changing the way people think. Bro, brilliant. These are the type of people that fuel my resilience. These are the type of people that will make a difference. I think the world will be different in much better ways in the future that's not so distant. So one day, yeah, everything gon' change from feeling like a slave. Get free, oh, one day, yeah, everything gon' change Well will no longer be saved We're all on our way to be free, yeah mm. Whoa. Went from niggas to criminals, pitiful, no gem. Crow, ostracized, dehumanized from locked inside, prison and in no proof, bro and slavery was never abolished, but did you, no, it was just remodified and modernized, it's by design, like you can't, read that 13th amendment, it's critical, poisonous, like the chemists mixed chemicals, that's what transition, the labels, now they change the language, the new F- word for N-word is criminal, people the subliminal, someone that says back the slaves, back in chains, back in the field, back where blacks became, Part of America, according to the US history, for us it's no mystery. They want to slaves like empathy, but it's a trick to see. These- They doing the same thing, just not in the same ways, it's a shame But to be honest, it's bigger than black and white Despite the fact, if you black, it's a harder fight Let's bring the light, what's becoming the global task? Oppressing the lesser social class I remember I had a combo with David Josie And he was explaining that type of sociology I swear the knowledge be the most powerful thing that you can have equipped Cause how can you combat what you don't even know exist? They woke, take heed to the seeds of wisdom Don't be a victim to the system Together we can really make a difference In the future that's not so distant So. One day If everything gon' change No life I'm feeling Like a sin
0: day by my boy Maserati E, the artist going the hardest here on Tailcation Nation. Shout out to Maserati E, he's the artist that's going the hardest because he's working hard, y'all nonstop, the hardest working man in the industry right now. My man got the podcast, you know what I'm saying? That's interviewing like everybody, all the stars. He's fresh out of the pen, fresh out of the pen just like the rest of us. He already has the podcast on the Last Mile, Sirius XM, all around. He's just on ABC, my boy E is doing great, Overall, overall great human being. Love you, Miles Body and keep up the great work. That's the artist going the hardest. Shout out to Aim for the Heart and Linda Steinberg. Keep doing the work in all of the schools, teaching the children about emotional literacy and behind the walls in the prison because it's so needed. And so we're back with our, our guest, Dr. Jody Armour, um, USC law professor extraordinaire and author of the claim book, Nigger Theory. So welcome back, Dr. Jody. My brother, good to be with you. So recently we held a class where you had to – um you, you did us all – I missed it. I'm sorry I missed it. We had a the class the students had an opportunity to meet Camilla Moore, the Chair of the California Reparations Task Force. What was that like?
2: Well, it was, it was great. It gave us all an opportunity to reflect, think hard about
0: reparations
2: and what the case is for it, you know, because law students are – Supposed to be in the business of Justice you know we're supposed to be Stewards of the justice system So this is a justice Claim of you know a a Profoundly uh, A a profound claim rooted in social Justice that uh, The harm of slavery Is one that should be Repaired by The Mm -hmm. nation that benefited From that chattel Slavery that's all it is you know And so that for some reason that's been very hard for people to wrap their minds around. It's very simple and just I mean, you know well, you know, uh, I think it's Sinclair Lewis famously said, uh it's hard to make a man understand something when his livelihood or check depends on his not Ooh. understanding it. Oh wow. That makes okay? all the sense in the world. So that you know, it's just people can become obtuse When it comes to something very straightforward and simple, if their own interests are may in some way be, in their view, undermined or diminished. So if if we took reparations seriously, there should be a significant redistribution of power and wealth in this nation. Right, that's what real reparations would mean. We'll redistribute power and wealth to make up for the harm done by slavery and the lack of compensation for the benefit that those slaves provided in building this nation on their backs. You know, we literally built this nation on our backs, and that's not hyperbole. You can dive into the history book and find the case for that. And so this nation became a powerhouse internationally because of free black labor in the most miserable human conditions imaginable. And now we just want this nation to acknowledge that by giving some of those by repairing some of the harm done to those who were used involuntarily to make this a great nation in the first place, right? People say, well, what did I have to do with what they did 200 years ago here in 2022 or 2023? I'm here in 2023. Somebody did slavery was in 1860. It ended in 1865. Why do I have to care? Why do I have to give, you know, the descendants of slaves anything um, since I didn't have a hand in slavery. You often hear that, right, Sam? And the answer right. to that right. contention is straightforward, right? You are in the house. You are living today in twenty twenty three mm. in this mm. in this in this mansion, in this palatial estate that was built by slaves. So you are a direct beneficiary of slavery right. because you are living in the house that slaves built. So in 2023, so you you can't you know it's not about you having to be there in 1850. It's about you being here now and reaping
0: the benefits <laughs> of those unjust arrangements. Straight up, the right? question is: Are white people are white people ready to rectify that? Or so, are, are, are white people on a whole at this time, Doctor Jody? Are they ready to really come to grips with the harm, the transgenerational harm that has been caused? I mean, we've we, been we hearing a lot of talk about. White entitlement, uh, white rage, coming to grips with the harm that they've caused. I seen someone sent me an article earlier that was put out by Fox saying that um, that Governor Newsom has already declined to back the reparations check. So I, I reached out to my buddy Chris and He's a general, you know. what I'm saying California for Just and Equitable, mm-hmm. uh, California for Just and Equitable, City for Just and Equitable California, CJ. And he's one of the generals in the move, the fight for reparations. Well, he is the general. And he said that's just propaganda, that they're putting that out, that the governor has not declined to support reparations. But just seeing how they're doing that, I was reading an article, and the article was written, like, from this really skewed perspective of, oh, they want to give $1.2 million to each one of these individuals, you know. And the way it was worded just made it seem so, like, nasty and filthy and dirty and wrong. My question is, is like, first of all, are you kidding me? What is $1.2 million for all of the harm that has taken place for so long, right? That's, first of all, and, I'm, and, and that's putting it lightly. But then, second of all, it brings me to the part of the conversation that we were having earlier when you were saying some people are just so stomped down in their way and in their thinking that even if you tell them 2 plus 2 equals 4, they're still going to say 2 plus 2 equals 5 and refuse to relent. To me, that's almost like a mental health issue for me.
2: You know, when you see what someone I'm going to die. I hear this. you, Sam? It's a, it's a denial. It's a denial of basic truths and facts. But, Sam, we see that every day all around us now. It's shocking to many of us, I think, to look out and see people actually saying things like, well... Uh, Biden didn't win the election. It was all a hoax, even though not one judge, even whether Republican or Democrat appointed judge, out of all the judges that looked at the facts said that there was anything to that. So there's no support for it at all. But they, you have the majority, the majority of Republicans in a lot of these polls say that the the, the, the election was rigged. So you you have people living in an alternative reality with no facts to back their alternative reality. They don't care about facts, you know. The, you know right. uh, you, they used to say facts don't care about your feelings. Well, their feelings don't care about your facts, <laughs> right. right? They just don't. And, I think and so. Yes, they they live in a fact-free vacuum, and a lot of them are mm. like that. And so. And it's not just with climate change. You can go up and down. And so when it comes to racism, it's the same way. You know, many of them deny racism like they deny climate change, you know. Right. And and you've you got to just acknowledge some of those are always going to be lost. You're not going to get to everyone. You just have to try to get to the ones that are open-minded enough and, you know, rational enough to be reached. And fortunately, there are a good number of them as well.
0: And that's what we... So thank God for that. When we, there, and when you say "or them, we're talking about of people who are in tune with humanity and evolving and growing and changing and doing what's right. It's not even a racial thing. It's just people who are in tune with their humanity and want to do right at this point in their life. That's what you're referring to? The people who want to do right, do in touch with their
2: humanity and want to do it specifically, express their humanity through their support for racial justice. You know, the, the recognition that. that racism is this nation's original sin, one of its original sins, the genocide of Native Americans and the enslavement of blacks, and they want to address
0: that and have their compassion run through that. Absolutely. Something I get a lot, something I get a lot, is anytime I say the word slavery, it's like this. It depends on the audience, but most of the times, if it's not an audience that's already knowledgeable about, you know, the discussion, I get some people feel uncomfortable. And this is black, white, Mexicans, everybody. It's like when you bring up the, the the history of black people and our struggle, some people just get uncomfortable with it. Some people want to tie their struggle into it, and I, I, I get that too, because white supremacy didn't only oppress black people. They're You know, white supremacists went around the world with it. They, they didn't discriminate, really. It's just, we just happen to receive it in a fashion that no one else has on the entire planet. Simple truth. That's right. Well, anytime I, anytime I mention slavery, um, there's always just like comes over some people like, Oh my God, here we go with this slavery talk again. Or I even had somebody send me a message that said, quit whining, sissy, it's over with, you know what I'm saying? And this was a Mexican dude. And I'm like, really? He's super ignorant apparently. But do you ever get that? When you mentioned slavery, oh, yeah. when you mentioned, like, black rights, that, do you ever get this, this feeling that comes over, like, here they come again with this black shit and this slavery stuff? And, and and for me, it's like, if we would just address it once and for all and deal with it, then we wouldn't have to keep having this conversation. If we stop running from it and pretending like it's not a cause of many of the ills that we're dealing with today, then we wouldn't have to keep having this conversation. If, if Squeaky Will is the one that gets the oil, and if, if you order, we will continue to sweep. It's as simple as that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, if people know their history, like you said, Sam, if people are very ahistorical, they, you know, they're historically very um, just uninformed a lot of times, totally. And so if you have some sense of your history, you recognize that. You know, it took a. It wasn't moral suasion that ended slavery. It wasn't a lot of white people turn around saying, "In the marketplace of ideas, good ideas battle the bad ideas, and the good ideas prevail." You know, the anti-slavery ideas. No, Plessy versus Ferguson in in 1858 said, the Supreme Court case that white, that black people have no rights that a white man has to respect. Right. So wow. it, it, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't the marketplace ideas that ended slavery. It was a bloody civil war, but six hundred thousand, maybe seven hundred thousand dead Americans. You had brothers and, cutting brothers' necks. Okay,
0: and then Jody, I want to say, I want to jump in. Which and say we? On we, we careful on this show and have listen today to talk about ending slavery because you know, like I know, that's the whole fight. It ain't ended yet. And we want our, our right. listeners to know that slavery has not ended. So when you say ended That's slavery, right. you're just talking about how they took chattel slavery from main from the rural you know areas of the South and they made it look different and put it behind the walls. But we just I just want to be clear as you talk for so our listeners. That's absolutely on, slavery it has not ended.
2: The, the 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 ability for them to sell me and my children into bondage has ended. Let's put it that way. When that yeah, ended, you, you know to, to sell it. me to to get, to put me on an auction block. And have me bend over and and then have and then put their fingers in my mouth and check my teeth and then bid bid on me those days were ended in eighteen sixty five those particular- that particular variation that particular variety right and so yes, that that was a you know when, when people you know and 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 note sam this is something that we were talking about earlier there were a lot of white people who were who were on those battlefields fighting against – they were, they were on the battlefield for a lot of reasons. You get into history, but a good number of them were on that battlefield fighting against slavery. And um, that's in the records too. You have their letters 100%. that they're sending home to their family, and, you know, their family talking to them. And so that's my hope when it comes to this to this nation, that there are good – you know, you had whites on the Underground Railroad. You had John Brown. You had them ready to go on to the Gettysburg, you know. But it, it, it still, you know, yeah, I'm 100% with you. I feel the the, uh, the you know the connect. What we've seen is that even after slavery, okay, in the form that we just talked about, the chattel form, you know, in which they you know in which they can sell me or you, you know, on an auction block, and our children and our loved ones, you know, and that that particular version, you know, when that ended, the nation didn't turn around and say, you know, we wronged these people. Let's make, let's right that wrong by really giving them a helping hand. No, they, at the end of Reconstruction, they turned their back on us and they let the South ride roughshod over black people. Black people had to run to Chicago and run to the North to get around all the KKK. Met, chaos that was unleashed. Right, right. And so, so, so we, you know, the nation has never really stood, and we're seeing what it looks like today. The nation has never really stood behind, you know, black people that it once had as chattel slaves, and said we recognize that as the just an an unspeakable horror and stain on this nation, and we're going to do all we can. To, to, to at least give some kind of reparations. You said 1.2 million. Well, Ian Hack, I think it was Ian Hacking. Um, this was back 25 years ago. Sam used to ask his students at in New York, in uh, college CUNY in New York, he used to ask his white students, uh, non-black students, if you were to remain who you are inwardly, but you were outwardly made made black, you had to become black. How much would it be how much would it um would you demand as compensation for that for that and he routinely got a million dollars a year what the the response he routinely got was a million dollars a year for life that's how much wow. white people see as as you know back then twenty five years ago as you know equitable compensation for wearing a black skin in america,
0: and that was twenty five years that was like yeah twenty five years ago, yep,
2: wow. So, so yeah, you know, to, to 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 do something about it, to recognize Sam when we walk down Skid Row, when, when when we go through here in Skid Row here in L.A., the largest Skid Row in the nation, you know, and you see 75% of the faces are black. When you look at that, what what I don't what I what a lot of people see are people to to pity, you know. We a lot of people see people who need charity. We need to give them tears. What I see are symptoms of injustice. I see a legacy of slavery. I see slavery reaching from back there to at the time it happened to, after that Civil War, us not doing what we should have done with Reconstruction kind of intervention. And so over the generations, it's been reinforced. We've been kept out of, you know, property through redlining and zoning and everything else. So when you walk through Skid Row, what you're seeing are the symptoms of injustice, not just some individuals to be pitied. You, you don't, you shouldn't be giving charity to those people. You should be doing justice to them by giving them what this nation owes them, and recognizing them as symptoms of this nation's own racist and unjust past.
0: Wow, that was so eloquently put, and it's true. And in the same vein. We should really look at our people when the cultural set in the same way, and it's hard for some people to hear that because when you think people who are unhoused, you're not thinking of anyone who did a crime to harm someone else. And when you think of somebody that's in the cultural set, you oh, well, they did a crime and get that, they hurt someone. However, it's the same rules apply. We should actually be looking at them like, how did they come to the point where they adopted criminality as a way of life? What does that say about us on a larger scale? What does that say about us as a people? Is society failing them? And so in, the, in the, uh, the theory of emotional illiteracy-based criminality, I, I like to take a social ecological approach, you know, to to looking at the person and examining people and their behavior. And the reason why we do that is because we don't want to assage the collective conscience of this country and pretend that they are not a contributing factor to the people within its borders. You know, there's a culture yeah. that comes down from the, any organization. There's an organizational culture that comes down, and America, just like every world, is an organization. This is a, it's really a corporation. It's a business. But the way we are is a direct reflection of the ideals and how this country is ran from the top. And so when we look at people in the carceral setting, yeah, we accept accountability. I teach the people in the 10P program and inside the prison, you got to be accountable for your actions. You have to be held responsible for your decisions. With that said, that does not in no way excuse or negate the fact that we all have been dealing with systemic racism and oppression since the moment we were born, and they it contribute these external stimuli contribute to the decisions that we made, and us adopting criminality as a coping mechanism. And so, I say that to say, when we talk about ending involuntary servitude and slavery, which I kind of want you to define um, in, in in legalese for for those who you know might need to hear from someone who don't talk stupid like me. <laughs> you feel me? Like I, I was told that I talk stupid, so. Please, I know I don't. Listen, I know I don't. <laughs>
2: if you do, I do, bro, and that that means that you know, know. Uh, um, somebody is going to have to explain, do a lot of explaining around here about um, a lot of stuff. But go on, man. I'm sorry, I cut you off.
0: No, it's, no, it's good. I'm glad you jumped in there. But I would love for you to give the people because you said that form of slavery. You said that form of slavery like two, three times. And so when you say that form, you, you know that there's another form that exists today. For those who don't know what this other form is, the one that we're fighting to end with ACA 8 and address through reparations along with the, you know, the form that everybody is used to, could you explain what that form is? What does slavery look like today?
2: Yeah, see, this is, uh, this is the key question in a lot of ways, Sam. And your sociological perspective is the key to this puzzle. Because for a lot of people, if you don't have a sociological perspective, you're not buying that people incarcerated today are like slaves, or are you know can be even compared to slaves. Or you're not even viewing people incarcerated as comparable to people who were in the Jim Crow South under segregation. You know, I remember when uh, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, first came out. I sat down in a barbershop, and I said, you know, well, you know, uh, now they're they're calling mass incarceration, racialized mass incarceration, the new Jim Crow. What do you all think about that? And you had a lot of, again, folks in that barbershop sitting back saying, you know, some of the old heads stroking their beard, their gray beard, saying, (laughs) hey, I was there during, you know, the 60s, during the... Real Jim Crow, they would say, during the real Jim Crow. Right. And during the real Jim Crow, that was about the social oppression of innocent Negroes. That's what was going on Mm -hmm. there, the social oppression of innocent Negroes. But Mm -hmm. when you're talking about racialized mass incarceration, you're talking about a lot of times violent criminals who are behind bars. You're talking about, they would say, not the social oppression of innocent Negroes, but the self-destruction of bad Negroes. Right. And so they would they would completely turn off to that idea, completely reject and repudiate the idea
0: that
1: prison. Hey, let me jump in here. I want you to finish.
0: So which goes. So let me jump in here, which goes back to what you were saying earlier about labeling people, because I believe it was Evelyn Ball. Another one of my my quotes that I like, she said, to label me is to negate me. Right. So I just wanted to drop that in there while you're talking about how they're labeling these, these new Negroes and by labeling them and slandering their character. Carter G. Woodson said, he said, the character assassination precedes the physical assassination, right? They, yep. they misalign you publicly, and once they get everybody to feel that you are scorned, that you're no good, that you're this bad guy, then they, you know, they have their way with you. So I just want to throw that that's in. It. That's, that sounds like something what you were saying. Absolutely. That's it. So once they view
2: the, themselves as superior to those bad Negroes, because they're good law-abiding Negroes, they see no comparison between black people who are in prison because they made bad choices and are engaging in self-destruction and black people who in the South under Jim Crow who were innocent Negroes suffering social oppression, right? And so what I've had to do, Sam, is attack that distinction that they're trying to draw by showing them that there can be social oppression in self-destruction. That mm-hmm. th- that even if you even if you do say right. this is self-destructive behavior, the seeds of that self of that self-destruction may be sold by social factors and forces, and so there you know, you, and those may be that may be the social oppression in the self-destruction. So let me give you a quick example, man. Uh, Durkheim was because you said sociological perspective that Durkheim is one of the founders of sociology, right? And the reason he's right. one of the founders of the sociology. Of yeah, Mio Durkheim, he, he came along and he said, look, I'm going to take a, an act that people view as per- perfect, pure, purely private, purely personal, purely individual. I'm going to take suicide. Right? Everybody looks at that as an individual decision, somebody wrestling with their own individual demons. And he said, I'm going to show you how suicide is not just a psychological act. It's a social fact. I'm going to show you right. how, for example... Suicide varies from society to society. Some societies have no, hardly any or no suicide. Some societies have many suicides. He said within a society, different groups have different rates of suicide, and those rates of suicide remain stable from year to year. They, they all have the same. You can bet on those rates being there year after year. So what you really have are social forces, you know, explaining suicide. You know, what looks like a purely individual psychological act is really a social fact, Right? And that wow. is a profoundly sociological imagination. That is. That is, a pro, right? Right. that is where sociologists come in, you know, and say, you can't wash your hands, society, of what these individuals are doing. You are come also on. accountable for what they're doing. Come on.
0: So that, and that's you know? why I never really was a fan of, uh, of, of uh, not just not only just desserts, but the other one, free will. I was never a fan of yep. the free will stuff because it was trying to start the collective consciousness of the country yep and, 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 and you know, negate their contributions to the to the individual. This is us from the Plantation yep. Nation, y'all. I'm here with my guest, uh, Dr. Jody Armour, USC law professor and also author of awesome book, Nigger Theory. And I wanna open the lines up right now. So we got a couple callers on the line right now, Doctor Jody. Um anybody wanna call in and ask Doctor Jody some questions or ask myself or, or be a part of the conversation? Excuse so them. Let's open the lines up. You going to take a couple of callers. Hello, state your name. State your name. Where are you calling from?
4: Hey, Samuel, Can you hear me?
0: Yes, I can.
4: Hey, it's uh, Sean. I'm from um, organizing in Maine. How are you doing?
0: Oh, peace, Sean. Shout out to Maine. I'm um, doing great. This is our second show. How you doing?
4: Um, not too bad. I know that you're running low on time. I just wanted to, um, since your guest is, um, a law professor, I was wondering we have a pretty, um pretty good law school in in Maine, the University of Maine Law School of Law, and I was wondering um, trying to um, build a coalition right now, um, how to engage people um, who are um, in the law school. If you have any suggestions about um, how to do that.
2: Oh, yeah. I'm doing it all the time. You know, as a law professor at University of Southern California Law School, right, I have to uh, um, think about ways to Get these messages across, and um, I've written plays, et cetera, to try to engage people in these issues. And I found one of the one of the best ways to engage people is through art, through performing arts. One of the things that Sam does so well, you know, I uh, we have microphone sessions, for example, on a regular basis, and uh, my students come to that, and they hear performances by people like Sam, and they hear their stories, their narratives, they develop sympathetic identification with these artists, and it humanizes them. And, you know, it it makes everybody feel more like a community and and it gets beyond stereotypes. You know, I do the same with taking my students into San Quentin, you know, back in the day. um, Now we're going to try to do it more locally to, again, sit down with and interact with folks who are behind bars and recognize them as human beings and not as these kinds of monsters that are often portrayed by prosecutors and on, you know, on on, on, uh, on television. So, um, you know, that kind of stuff for sure. And then one, finally, in the law school, you know, having discussions, you know, uh, taking abolition seriously, you know, we as lawyers, this is this is our bread and butter. We're thinking social justice, racial justice, you know, and so you're uh, spreading the, the the word, the good word about abolition in, in the legal setting.
4: I, I appreciate that. There's a um a lot of prison abolition happening in Maine right now, and it's kind of hard to kind of turn it on its head and say, well, the real original issue we've been fighting has been slavery abolition. You know, so definitely, you know, socializing people and and having conversations. Um, but like the biggest thing that I've come up across is, you know, Maine seems to be a prison abolitionist state and not a slavery abolitionist state, um, which we're really yeah. the union as a as a free state. So I guess there's definitely a way to try and pivot the conversation, but it's just um, that I appreciate your your uh, your response, though.
2: Yeah, but I think you point out there the proud tradition of Maine of not having, um, you know, partaken in the institution of slavery at the time in a direct way that many other states did. And so now it should be living up to those ideals today by rejecting this contemporary form of slavery, you know, which is these concrete slave ships we call prisons, you know, and imprisonment Mm -hmm. itself, as Sam has been saying, can be analogized to slavery once you do what we just did, Sam, with that sociological frame of mind, you see it's not just individual wrongdoers, but actually still society robbing people of their freedom by sending mm-hmm. social, criminogenic social forces to them.
4: Wow, yeah, that, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Um, thank you for that. Sure. Right on it. Thank you for calling in, Sean.
0: And for all our other callers, we're going to have to get to our next time because we're coming to an end, and I want to give our guests an opportunity to share some last words. So, Dr. Jody Armour, thank you for coming to tell us in the Plantation Nation today and, and talking to us. I mean, this conversation was so rich that I really feel like we can have a second conversation and do this again. Well, are there heck, any, heck, you know, last words that you want to share with everybody before you leave today?
2: Heck yeah, man. Uh Sam, it's been so—it's like a moment of grace for me to have this conversation with you. You know, you emerged from the prisons like my dad emerged from the prison. You know, he, he went in there, uh, not a learned man. He emerged a very learned man. You ha- you're you a very learned brother, man. And so it's, it's awesome to have these conversations with you. And just keep it going. I'm going to be listening for, you know, the, the weeks and months ahead, man. Looking forward to it.
0: Right on. Thank you very much. And I look forward to having you back so you can lace the people up once again. And thank you to everybody who came in today and checked us out on Tales from the Plantation Nation. All my people behind the walls, keep your head up, chin up, chest out, like my boy Filthy Phil would say. You know, um, and, and just keep looking. Keep looking to the horizon. Look down every now and then so you don't trip over your own feet. And know that we out here fighting for you. We love you. Do the work so you can come out here and fight for others just like we're doing for you. With that said, um, tune in on Sundays. To catch Abolition today, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Tune in every Wednesday to catch Kelsey in the Plantation Nation with me, your host, Simon brown 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Thank you all. Be safe. One love. Peace. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Don't worry. Don't worry. I'll be there in a minute. Get on of y'all, get on of y'all. Ghosts.
3: you all were going to be this much trouble, we would have picked our own fucking cotton.